If someone told you they found the secrets to being an exceptional leader, would you believe them? Now, let's suppose you ended up trusting this person and what they said. Now, they give you the key or keys to leading well. You're impressed, you're energized, and excited to do the hard work. You keep those refreshingly simple principles right in front of you, and you actually begin to see real positive change. Previously jaded high achievers are now the most engaged people in meetings. Disjointed communication between different sites is beginning to find a rhythm. And you, you're actually feeling excited to go into work. Welcome to the Impact of Leadership podcast, where we believe that no one drifts into excellence. I'm your host, Steve Shear, and today's episode lays out how to build strong leaders. Alah Hunskins helps high-achieving people become high-achieving leaders. And over the past two decades, he's worked with over 2,000 groups of leaders in 25 different countries. In addition to working with huge names like General Motors and Pfizer and Microsoft, he's also a speaker, trainer, and author of Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. Now, as a personal side note, Alah was one of the most gracious, humble, and fun guests that I've had. I genuinely enjoyed my time with him. We spoke for a lot of minutes before and after the recording. You're going to love this episode, I'm telling you. So get something to take notes with. This is a great one. Let's start with Alah giving his definition of leadership. I have a very broad definition. I believe that any time that any of us are trying to work with anyone to get anything done, that's leadership. And by the way, that anyone could be ourselves. So sometimes it's just a, a team of one, but oftentimes it's teams of two, three, or more. So it's again, anytime we're trying to work with anyone to get anything done, it takes leadership because you need to have a vision. You then need to understand what the issue is. You have to come up with ideas. You then have to develop those ideas and then implement and act on them to create your solutions. And that's what leadership is all about. That is a really good and helpful definition of leadership. And before we move past this, something you said is just, I, if I don't ask, it's going to bother me later. So leading ourselves, can you just speak to that for a minute? Um, what have you learned? What have you seen? What is the importance of leading ourselves? Oh my gosh, it's everything in that. And my probably my all-time favorite leadership quote comes from the two-time Nobel Prize winner, Albert Schweitzer who said, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It's the only thing. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, when it comes to leadership, if it is about influence, because that is a big piece of it, is that no one is going to believe your message if they don't believe the messenger. And we have to realize as leaders, we are the instrument. Our voice, our body, our way of being, our attitude and so self-leadership is the willingness to hold up the mirror and start to recognize how am I showing up, not just to other people, but how am I showing up to myself? I'll give you an example of a story. So one of the things I write about in, in my book, Cracking Leadership Code, is the importance of credibility. And I say the number one thing you can do to become more credible, it sounds super simple when I say it, show up on time. Because it's the easiest thing to measure, right, Steve? But you're either there or you're not. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. when I, I had a mentor who taught me that. And I remember showing up to meetings on time because I used to be perennially just barely on time. And at the beginning of this whole showing up on time thing, I was going, oh, I'm here. And of course, the other person would be late 
And I would get upset. I was like, this isn't fair. I busted my butt to get here on time. Why aren't you here? And I realized it took me a little while, but I finally got to the point where I realized I'm not showing up on time for them. I'm showing up on time for me. Because every single time you follow through on a commitment to yourself, you are building trust with yourself that you are the type of person who does that. And one of the things that we know around behavior change is that one of the core things to get people to change behavior and then to maintain behavior is identity. So for example, are you a smoker, Steve? Do you smoke cigarettes? I do not, no. So if I offer you a cigarette, what would you say? You're like, no thanks. No thanks because you're like, I'm not a smoker. Like mm -hmm. it's not even a question for you because it's off the table because it's your identity. And identity statements are so strong. So all of which to say is self-leadership is a way for you to cultivate the identity of the person that you want to be. And it starts by looking in the mirror and taking an honest self-assessment of, is this there? Yes, great, celebrate that, honor that. And if not, what do I need to do to close the gap to become the person that I wanna be? Man, it's good. That is so good. And you, you uh, mentioned it. I want to just highlight it real quick. So the, the, the book that you mentioned is Cracking the Leadership Code. Uh, and we're going to get into that. Uh, before we do, you know, who, who was it that you were thinking about when you wrote this book? Wow. So <laughs> who was I thinking about? So the book didn't just happen like, let me sit down and write a book about leadership. So my background is I am a leadership practitioner. I work with individuals, teams, and groups. I've been doing it for 25 years. And probably about 15 years in, I, was, I had seen, I literally worked with tens of thousands of, of leaders, thousands of groups, and I kept seeing the same patterns. And these patterns kept showing up. And I thought, there's got to be a better way where people can accelerate their learning curve. So the book came out of stories of people's life experience, their own and my own and examples and crystallizing what were the most key or the most important drivers to help us become better leaders. And so who I was thinking of were those, I, I call them aspiring leaders. So hopefully those that are listening, you are here because you aspire to become better. And I believe leadership is this journey of constant never ending improvement. So the target I was thinking about were the people that were in those workshops, in my coaching sessions, um, in my trainings, like how can I help them to be a little bit better today? And hopefully over time, if they practice these things consistently, that they'll be a lot better and not just better at, you know, I'm not just a better VP of sales, mm -hmm. I'm, a better, I'm a better person because ultimately I have a hidden agenda, which is I want people to be able to thrive, not just in their work life, but in their life life. There were three or four things in there that you said that, that I totally identify with. Um, but one of the things towards the end that you said, not just their work life, but the, you know, their life life. We talk, I talk about this frequently. Um, and actually just in our last sales meeting, I looked at our, our sales team and we went all these numbers and all these initiatives and all this kind of stuff. And I just said, don't forget to live your life. Don't let this job become your identity. Uh, there's so much more uh, to life. So thank you for, for highlighting that. Um, and, uh, and, and letting us know who you wrote this book for and that it's impacting you and us and, and those that are aspiring to do well and do great and excellence in leadership. You know, it's not, it's not easy. I love the fact, Steve, that you just brought up, you talked to the sales team and said, don't let this be your whole identity. And again, going back to that identity statement, right? Who are, who am I? And if I just define myself narrowly as I am this job function, then your highs and lows are all predicated on how successful you are. Now there's a scary thing that, uh, I've heard you say, 
Uh, and this is not a gotcha, I promise. <laughs> this is not a gotcha question, but I've heard you say that only around 23% of people think their leaders lead well. So here are a couple of questions. So what happened to leadership? You know, how did we get here to where people think that only maybe a quarter of the people that were, uh, that are under our leadership actually think we're leading well? Yeah, such a good question. So yeah, that, that statistic came out of the research I did for my book when I was looking at how are people rating their leaders? How do we get here? That's a really good question. And I'll tell you how we got here. And I'm going to tell this by the way of a story that has to do with my kids. So I have two kids. My son is Alex. He's 17 now. And my daughter Miranda is 14. Well, this happened about 11 or so years ago. So they're six years old and three years old. And so the six and the three-year-old kids are in my living room. And as kids are want to do, they were goofing off and getting really loud. And I was trying to get some kind of work thing done in the kitchen. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember they were getting loud and I got triggered. I got to confess. It was not my best moment. I got a little triggered, Steve. And this is what I said. I walked into the living room where they were goofing off, getting loud. And I said, would you two stop behaving like children? Now I'm telling you this for two reasons. Number one, that's a ridiculous thing to say to a couple of kids, right? They are children. But the crazy thing, Steve, was that as soon as those words, would you stop behaving like children? As soon as those words came out of my mouth, I was in shock because that was the exact same phrase my mother used to use oh. with my brother and I when I was a kid. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've just become my mother in this moment. And then I just made me think about, you know, unconsciously, I had just absorbed and regurgitated the behavior of the previous generation. So that leads me to like, why did we get here? How did we get here as leaders? Well, we got here because most of us lead based on what we copy. And so we copy the previous generation and they copied their previous generation and so on and so forth. And if you go back far enough, which isn't that many generations, you go back, it's only about 150 years at most, not even. Um, you go back to the first person who kind of introduced the whole idea of organizational leadership because you know, we didn't used to work in companies. There were no, before the industrial age, there was none of this. And that was Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was considered the father of the field of management. We have to really remember in the industrial age, there was labor and there was management or leadership. And those two things were completely different. So the literally, I mean, and one of Taylor's big disciples was Henry Ford. And Henry Ford said it very well. You know, Ford, founder of Ford Motor Company, invented the assembly line for the for the automotive industry. And this is what he said about his employees. He said, why is it every time I want a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? Right? So the whole idea was workers were basically shut up and do what you're told. That's it. And so that's what most of us have gotten. It's in our bones. We know that very well. But of course, we don't live in the industrial age. You know, even the Ford Motor Company is not making the Model T with manual laborers working on the assembly line, not changing the product for 23 years like they did with a Model T. So that's all changed. So we live in this knowledge work, digital age, where information, everybody has it, right? Everyone has an internet access. So what are you doing as a leader? So we can no longer use this command and control style. It fails miserably, especially with Gen Y, Gen Z, who just expect to be treated with more respect than that. And so they are very happy to say, no, I don't think you lead very well. I'll go somewhere else. I've got access to LinkedIn, Glassdoor, Indeed. I'm going to find out where the grass is greener. And I'm going there if you treat me this way. Hence, we get to the place where, do you think your leaders are effective? 
and only 23% of people say so. So that's where we got. That's how we got here. Yeah, so good. I uh, I wrote down, uh, you said Frederick Winslow, Winslow Taylor, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got lots to look up uh, and research after we're after this call already, we're already into the meat of this. Well, here, this here's awesome. the thing. I mean, it's so if you want to know where you're going, it's good to know where you've come from. And this is why I believe that all of us on a certain level should be at least cursory students of basic leadership 101. Why are we doing what we're doing? Well, that's a really good quote. <laughs> uh, okay. So I, I want to transition a little bit into, um, you know, some of the secrets that that are in your book. Uh, so if you, if you would, you know, walk us through, the three secrets to building strong leaders. So I want to tell this, uh, the three secrets by way of a story about a guy I worked with named Matt. So Matt is the district is a district manager for a national U.S. franchise. And when I met Matt, he was actually already he was the top ranked district manager in the company. The company had a hundred district managers, a hundred districts around the U.S., and he was number one. And I said, Matt, that's amazing. You know, have you always been such a high performer, high performing leader? He said, not at all. When I started in my career, I was like 84th out of this list. And I was down in the 80s for a, a lot of years. So Matt would be in that category, those, you know, not 23% that lead well, but the other mm -hmm. group, right? Definitely not. And I said, so Matt, you know, what changed? Because you're number one. I mean, you didn't just improve. You skyrocketed to the top of the list. He said, I had to change my mindset. See, when I started, I thought because I was promoted from being a store manager to a district manager, I thought I was in charge and my job was to be the fixer. So what I would do is every day, each of their retail stores, they'd get printouts of all their key metrics. And he'd look at what was printed out and they call it the hot list, the daily hot list. And he'd look for what was in red, what was not measuring up. And he'd circle what was in red. And then he'd jump in his car and he'd drive from store to store. And he'd tell the store managers like, this is wrong. You got to fix this. You got to do this. Do and he was running around. He's working his head off. He's working like 60 hours a week. And he is struggling and going nowhere. And Matt said, he said the worst day was the day he realized there were people on his teams that were quitting and he didn't even know what their names were. He said, what kind of life is that? What kind of leader am I? So he completely changed his approach. So he started instead of going in and telling people what was wrong, he'd go in. The first thing he started doing was like, oh, these are people. How are you? What's going on? And actually starting to build relationship with people. And then he still had the hot list. He still had the data. But instead of telling people, you need to fix this, he'd show them the information and say, well, this is what's going on. What do you think we should do? And he'd engage a dialogue by listening. And then together, they would co-create solutions together. And he said, as soon as I shifted that mindset and those behaviors, then the numbers started going up. Because what I learned through this process was the key to making the numbers was to stop focusing on the numbers but instead to start focusing on the people first because it was the people that were delivering the numbers. And then he said, this is the coolest part. He said, is now I'm number one. I work so much less hard and I have so much less stress than I did when I was 84th. And plus our teams are performing better and they're having so much more fun. And so what Matt's story really describes, those three things, those three shifts that he made, or what I have come to know is the three secrets to building strong leaders. So the first is connection. That at its core, leadership is not a job title. It's not a position. It is a relationship between a leader and someone that chooses to follow. And I say choice very intentionally because in this day and age, 
followership is a choice. And if you can't prove your business case, why people should follow you, they're going to leave. Sure. So step one, the skill number one is connection. Number two, it's around communication and specifically about seeking out understanding so that ultimately everyone has shared and common understanding. That is so important because without shared common understanding, you don't have a solid platform on which, on which to make good decisions and then get great results. So we've got connection number one, communication number two, and the third piece that he did is around collaboration. What can you do to create an environment where people can thrive and operate at their best? So those are the three secrets to building strong leaders, connection, communication, and collaboration. So you've been in thousands of conversations, and maybe that's undershooting what you've done over these last 25 years, but let's say thousands of conversations, dozens of countries over these last few decades. And you're, you're talking about Matt, you're talking about connection, communication, collaboration. So this, you may have already answered this question, but what, what things, are those the things that people need to do or to have to perform at their best? Or are there other things that, that, people need to perform at their best? That's a piece of that. Um, and, you know, one of the things around connection, communication, collaboration, because as you hear all those things, you're probably thinking, well, first of all, they all rhyme. They all start with C. I get it. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing there that sounds revolutionary, earth-shaking, and it's not. And again, only 23% of leaders are leading well. So what does this tell us? It tells us that these are easier in theory than they are in practice. Yes. And so, so, so for example, what are some of the things that get in the way of connection? So one thing, for example, to connect takes time, right? And if you're a busy person, got to get a good, like, do you actually take the time to truly listen to the people that you're leading? You know, I've had people come out of my workshops and say, wow, like what you had us do in that exercise, spending half an hour with someone I spent, I know this person I just spent half an hour with in this training class. I know them better than people who have been on my team for three years. Right. So what does that tell me about my leadership? So all of which to say is easier said than done. So to go back to answering your question around what things do people need to perform at their best? Yeah. If we think about as leaders and you think about that third C collaboration, mm -hmm. we want to become what I call motivational choice architects. So if you think traditional architects design buildings, what leaders do is they design environments in which people can thrive, or in some cases, just barely survive. Because the ones that do it well, design by intention. Those that design by default and are unconscious, you have a lousy, lousy environment. So yeah, there are four, in my, my understanding, there's four key ingredients that need to take place in that environment for people to perform at their best. Number one is people need to feel safe. And they have to feel, first of all, physically safe, which is why many of us are still, you know, I know we're recording this in July of 2021, mm -hmm. people are still working from home, right? Because there's a pandemic still going on. And so part of it is, are they physically safe? But beyond that, and especially important, is do people feel psychologically safe? Do they feel safe being fully themselves? Do they feel safe as asking things like, could you go back and say that again? Because I didn't understand. Because sometimes, you know, some people feel that that's a threat. That's a career limiting move if I speak up and have an honest conversation. So the first piece is safety. The second thing that we need to do is we need to create energy environments that are energized. Like we've all been in those soul crushing, mind numbing meetings that are just 
all over the place. Like, yes. uh, like and a simple example is it even doesn't have to be like mind numbing. It's just, it goes on too long. You know, let's mm-hmm. say we're two hours in and we haven't taken a break and everyone's going, oh my gosh, all I can think about is I need to go to the bathroom. Like something as simple as that. It's like, do you build breaks in every 75 to 90 minutes into your meetings? Because humans need a break. We have a biology that needs to be attended to. So that's second. It's like, again, so lots of things we can do to energize the environment. So we've got safety, we've got energy. The third piece is around purpose. People perform at their best when they have a sense that what they're doing connects to a greater meaning, that what they're doing is contributing to something bigger than themselves. How are you showing whatever your product or service is, how are you showing how this benefits to the individual, to the team, to the organization, and ultimately to society? So how are you bringing that in? You know, you know the classic story about the two bricklayers, right? That there's always two bricklayers are working on this project and somebody walks by and one bricklayer just looks so miserable. Ugh, like, uh, and they said, what are you doing? It's like, can't you see what I'm doing? I'm laying brick. I just want the day to be over. I get paid and go home. Right. And the other one, they walk over to that person like, and they look like they couldn't be happier. You know, what are you doing here? And they stop and they, they step back and say, you see this wall? we're building a cathedral, right? So it's all about perspective. Like, sure. But as leaders, we're the ones who have to connect people to understanding the big picture vision of why they're doing what they're doing. So that's third, right? We've covered safety, we've covered energy, we've covered purpose. And the last one is around ownership, that people want autonomy. You want to give people the freedom and the latitude and the creativity for them to figure out how they do what they do. Give them the guardrails, the what, what the objectives are, but within that, set them free to be able to come up with their own solutions, right? No one wants a micromanager. And so a piece of this is giving them the guardrails and then letting them loose because when people feel like they're making progress towards a meaningful goal, it is the number one single greatest motivator that they're gonna have. So those are the four elements. Again, to recap, safety, energy, ownership, and purpose. Do those things and that will give people the right environment to perform at their best. I love this. Man, so practical. I'm, I got two things for you then. So two different, two different types of people. First, uh, you're at breakfast with someone who was just promoted into their first role with authority, direct reports, you know, a larger PL. They're shaking a little bit. They're, they're nervous about this next step because they just got this promotion. What would you tell them to focus on in the first hundred days? Yeah, this is such a classic case. I mean, this happens all the time, right? And the first thing is like, first of all, I'll say, okay, before we get into your 100 days today, take off your superhero cape, just take it off and put it away. Because you're probably getting to this role thinking you have to be the superhero. Like I have to do it. I'm in charge. Like you're the leader and everyone knows you're the leader. But remember, you're not the commander in chief. You're not the superhero in chief. You are the facilitator in chief. And what do facilitators need? They need information. So what I would tell them to focus on in the first 100 days is start by going on a listening tour. Because when you go on a listening tour in your first 100 days, there's a lot of things that you do when you ask people great provocative questions. Number one, you're showing them that you care what they think because you're taking the time, which by the way is your most precious resource, you're taking the time to listen to them. So ask them really good questions. Hey, and here are some good sample questions. I'm new in this role which is obvious. I'd love to hear what you think. If you were me, what sort of things do you think I should be focusing on? And if you are earnest and mean well, they'll tell you. And guess what? And you start hearing it from not one person, two people, but start hearing it from three, four, five. You have a lot of data points and they're going to start 
painting out the canvas of things to focus on. Again, you're listening to them, and as they're bringing stuff up, you say, thank you, I understand that. You're not saying that you agree. You're not saying I commit to this. Thank you for that input. I want to get some more information. And then if you're going to make a promise, like I'm going to come back to you on these things, make sure you write those promises down and that you keep them, that you do circle back. Because one thing people don't want is to feel like they're sending stuff into the black hole of suggestion boxes, right? People want to feel like they belong. So do keep track. So yeah, I say go on a listening tour, but go on a listening tour and take notes and then let people know what ends up emerging as your priorities and why. And the more that you can, as you start to emerge with what the priorities are, give people credit for having given input into that, right? And so everyone has a voice. They won't necessarily have a vote on terms of what you're going to decide because this is not a full-fledged democracy. At the end of the day, you're going to make some choices. However, if you're making choices that are built on what people said, you know, say, hey, Steve, you know, you brought this up. This is where we're going with this. Thank you. Or you know what, Steve, you brought this up. This is we're going in a different direction and here's why. But I wanted you to know that because I value your input. It's amazing how people will go along with decisions that have nothing to do with what they wanted if they feel included in the process. So that's what I would say. Focus in the first 100 days, do a listening tour, and then start to let your priorities emerge organically out of the back and forth with those people, which by the way, if you haven't been keeping score, what are the three skills you're doing in that listening tour and taking notes? You're connecting, you're communicating, and you're collaborating. So, okay, a week later, because people love having breakfast with you, apparently. A week later, uh, <laughs> you're at breakfast with someone who's bordering on, you know, that stereotypical burnout. Mm-hmm. Okay? And you you can sense it when you're talking to them. They've been managing people for years. They've got some leadership scars from the past. What advice do you give them? This is such an important thing. And I think burnout is such a key. I mean, a lot of people are dealing with it right now. First of all, I would ask them, I'd ask them to tell me about their days and what's what's the pain point. Because there's also what's happening, but then there's the story about what we tell ourselves about what's happening, right? And those two things may or not be the same. So first of all, do they have an outlet to vent? I mean, because one thing is like, oh my gosh, because so many leaders think of leadership as this solitary thing and I have to shoulder the burdens myself. So one thing I would say in terms of advice is what kind of support do you have outside of your work? Um, where do you go to unload and unpack and de-stress? Because you need that. You know, to think that you can do this yourself, again, take off the superhero cape. Um, so first of all, you need to find some support. That's number one. And then the other thing I would say is I look at their life and both their work and personal life, all of it. Where are the places that you are setting boundaries and turning off? Because mm-hmm. one of the things, and I, and I do actually trainings around energy management and coaching stuff, is that human beings are not designed to be like machines or computers, which is we're not designed to go, you know, 24 hours straight is not three times more productive than eight hours straight, right? Just to give that, you right. know, we're not a math problem. Like everything, if you look at every single biological system in the human body, it pulses, right? So for example, your heart rate, right? If you look at your heart rate on an EKG, it goes up, it goes down, right? And hopefully you have a steady number of beats per minute. And that's the same thing with every other, your lungs, you inhale, you exhale. So we are designed to pulse from higher levels of energy expenditure to lower energies of what we'll call renewal, right? After you inhale, you need to exhale, right? And so we have to learn how to design and put healthy pulses back into our life. 
And so we have to stop thinking of breaks as being for losers and sissies because you're not strong enough, right? That is an industrial age model. I mean, think about how many of our metaphors we talk about. You know, I've got to put my nose to the grindstone, my pedal to the metal, I've got to burn the midnight oil, I've got to keep firing on all cylinders. Those are all mechanistic metaphors. You know, we're human beings. And if you don't build in breaks, you're going to pay for it. And a good example I use sometimes when I teach this stuff is around, look at any NASCAR Formula One. Yes, they drive the high performance engines and still they need pit stops. Yeah. And so in those pit stops, they have orchestrated those pit stops to be as efficiently and as effectively as possible in a short amount of time. So you have to, and I would work with people, I would coach them, what are the things that renew and recharge you specifically for different people? It's different things. For some people, having a conversation with, uh, with somebody or in a group is totally energizing. Other people, getting into a group is draining. Mm -hmm. So find and choose what are some things you need to do. But so there's a lot of things within that. If you're constantly multitasking, you're going to burn down your reserves more quickly. So I, I very much promote single tasking. I'm a huge fan of taking breaks every 90 minutes or, or fewer. I'm a big fan of digital detox, of turning your devices off and not yeah. being plugged in. So a lot of different pieces along that. And so I, I write about some of this stuff in the book and the chapter on energy. But yeah, a lot of things. But ultimately, you have to recognize you are a human and not a machine. And then you have to start to build the systems around that accordingly, whether those systems address your physical energy, your emotional energy, your mental energy, or even let's say your spiritual energy, which not is not necessarily religious. It's about your own sense of meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. So I would say you have to look at those different elements and there's things that I could do to help them in more detail. So this is going to be a long breakfast. I can tell already. We're going to talk about this for a while. <laughs> well, you, guys, you guys started at 4.30, so you're good. Yeah, let's exactly. Look at, let's look at your seven o'clock or eight o'clock meeting. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, allow this is, I mean, I'm loving this. Uh, and, and I want to shift just a little bit because uh, you talked about this uh, unplanned at the beginning about working on yourself and uh, leading yourself. And I don't believe that you ended up where you are on accident as a leader, as a dad. You, you've made some wise choices along the way and worked really hard, among other things, among other things. So uh, this question is, is, that's all preamble to this question of who or what has had the greatest impact on your leadership journey? Wow, big question. And, you know, it's interesting. So I know we're recording this in July of 2021. So just as a part of this, my, my father passed away a month ago. Um, from oh Parkinson's, yeah, from Parkinson's disease, he had been suffering. So, and sorry. Um, thank yeah. you, thank, and we actually had the memorial service this past weekend. So, this idea of who has the impact is very top of mind, and more than top of mind, it's very top of heart right now. I'm very feeling open hearted around this stuff, and it's interesting. So, you know, where I tend to go through around greatest impact, yes, there are people on the outside, but ultimately, I think this is the first organization where we see leadership modeled for good and for bad, and whatever reasons, and. So I think greatest impact, I'd say certainly like my mother, my grandmother, and my father. So my, my parents split up when I was one, and I was raised by my mother and my grandmother. My grandmother was really my primary parent. And a little preamble, and I've talked about, I talked about this in the book somewhat too, is that my mother and my grandmother are both Holocaust survivors. Um, and my grandmother was born in 1909. My mother's born in 1935, and they're Jewish, and they're from Poland, and they were in Belgium. And so the, their experience, I mean, just talking about putting things in perspective, I mean, we were going through this pandemic last year, 
And I was like, ah, pandemic, got to stay at home, watch Netflix. This is a piece of cake. Right. Compared, like suddenly, yeah. well, yeah, perspective, because like I think about what my mother lived through in wartime, literally being hunted for her life. It's like, this is a piece of cake. I can stay home. I can wear a mask. I can do this. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like that perspective and also just not taking too much too seriously from them and also from my father, you know, you know it's interesting because my father had some, and I eulogized him last weekend. He had some wonderful qualities. And like all of us, he was a mixed bag. And so here's the beauty, you know, with all the mixed bags in our lives, because everyone is a mixed bag, right? Everyone's got positives. Like, I don't know any actual saints in real life. Right, right. But the beauty of, like, what I learned from my father, I mean, there were so many wonderful qualities about him that I I think I've inherited and things. And all the things where I I see kind of, we can call them failings or shortcomings, Mm -hmm. I got great lessons on what not to do. And I said, I'm going to be a different kind of dad. And so there's the gift, you know, how do I take all these experiences that we would label good or bad? And I say, you know, what's the gift in that? So for example, my dad never was a great communicator of like family events. In fact, I remember talking to him once about, he had this wonderful uncle, Eddie, that my great uncle. And I remember talking with him. I said, so how's uncle Eddie doing? And he said, uncle Eddie died two years ago. I said, he did? He said, you didn't know? I said, who would have told me, right? So how would I not know that? Like you, so one of the things I always, I'm very sensitive to in my family is if there's news, like my father getting ill is letting other people know. It's like, hey, I'm sharing this information with you with no expectation you need to do anything, but I'm just sharing this with you because you're family and I love you. Like, so that, so my dad taught me that lesson, right? Now he taught it in a very funky way, Mm -hmm. but he taught it to me. So, you know, again, so who has had the greatest impact? I'm going to go back to my family, my mother, Mm -hmm. my grandmother, and my dad. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. Sure, um, of course. Of course, I obviously I had no clue, and I, have, I don't have any expectation of where the questions lead. But this is one of the reasons that I love doing this. Uh, when folks like you are open to sharing, being vulnerable about their own lives and their own journeys, and how you've mined diamonds out of life that you've been dealt, um, the family members that uh, have gone through traumatic experiences, and. Exactly. Impacted you in, in those different ways. So thank you. You got it. Well, again, diamonds, using your analogy, it comes from coal and pressure, right? And time. So like that you think about these are the experiences. And if in life we want to learn how to use those experiences, like you said, to turn that pressure and that coal into diamonds. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. I can't believe, I wish we had uh, another hour. I should have set like two hours aside, like that breakfast <laughs> that you had with that guy that's burning out or lady that's burning out. So thank you again for, for doing this. Um, as we wrap up, uh, you know, break that fourth wall for me again and speak directly to our listeners. Uh, you know, what, what do you want to leave them with? Because we, we've covered a lot of ground here. So thanks for, first of all, for tuning in today and listening to the end here. Um, so my wish for you, first of all, I wish you all the best of success on your leadership journey. And, you know, and it is a journey. And I think I want to leave you with the idea that, you know, don't confuse the process with the result. You know, try to fall in love with the process because, as soon as you get to that top of the mountain, if you're just like, I'm here, like two minutes later, you're like, where's the next mountain? Or where's my friend's mountain? They're taller than mine. You know, one of my mentors always said, comparison is a thief of joy. So figure out, you know, where do you want to go? And, you know, make the steps to do that and celebrate those, those steps along the way. Coming off of my father's funeral this past weekend, you know, life is pretty fleeting. And so leadership looks different for different people. And so the big things I would suggest you do, and I I talked about one of these already, is um, don't take this journey alone, is surround yourself with people that you love and that love you, because at the end of all this, that's all you're going to get. 
to take with you out of this life are those relationships. So take that. And the other thing as you're taking this journey is be brave enough to ask people around you for feedback because they know more about you than you think they do. And they actually know more about you than you probably know yourself. You know, humans were notoriously bad at self-judgment and, and self-insight. So ask people for, hey, what could I be doing better? And listen to them. Go on that listening tour and do that. So listen to people, enjoy the journey, and surround yourself with people that you love because that's what you get in this life. And that's what I hope you can take away with. And again, if I can be of any support to you in any way, please do reach out. Um, my, my life's mission is about helping people to live vibrant and alive worlds by kindling the fire of their brilliance. And so if I can be of help in any way, please do reach out. I'd love to be of service. Fantastic way to end this episode. And uh, whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us for the last uh, couple of years, uh, all of the information in order to connect uh, with Allah is going to be in the show notes. So make sure you scroll down in whatever platform you're listening to this in that will be in the show notes, uh, links to his book, uh, links to connecting with him, uh, whether it's through LinkedIn or other social media sites. The book title, again, is Cracking the Leadership Code. Um, thank you again for being here. Uh, man, I've loved this conversation. Steve, thank you so much. It's really been an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. Takeaways. Now, there's so many. So don't forget to scroll down to the show notes for all the links that will help you take this podcast further. So takeaways. Number one, connection, communication, collaboration. Number two, leaders create safe environments, they display energy, and they connect work to a greater purpose outside of the immediate task. Action items. Number one, take off the superhero cape. Your people don't need perfection. Plus, you can't give it to them anyway. Number two, time. It'll keep you from, number one, connecting with people. So tell your time where to go. If you don't, growth in these areas that Allah laid out will not happen. Now, if you found value in what you heard, I encourage you, give us a written review in whatever platform you're using right now. We read all of them and it helps us reach more folks just like you. And then send this episode to someone who needs a little encouragement. We have dozens of conversations that will aid in your growth as a leader. So click subscribe and you'll have access to all of the episodes just like magic. Now, I can't wait to be with you again soon. But until then, from all of us at the Impact of Leadership, thanks for listening. <laughs>